tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Eric Schwartzel. Now, we've had Eric uh, on the show before to talk about his book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. It's kind of about Hollywood making inroads into China and where that effort has succeeded and faltered. Uh, and I, I got him back on the show today because he had a really interesting piece in The Wall Street Journal um, about, uh, frankly, how terrible Hollywood is doing in China at the moment, uh, declines across the board, uh, softness everywhere. Uh, Eric, thanks for being back on the show. Hey, thank you. Always a pleasure. So, all right. So let's talk uh, Chinese box office. What is what are Hollywood studios looking at when they look at the uh, the the tale of the box office tape in China right now? There's not much to look at. Um, I, I think. What's happening now is actually the culmination of many, many years of, of movie-going trends in China. I think you and I are very accustomed to a narrative where China was a place of almost like limitless revenue possibilities. They have 1.4 billion people. Um, for the past 20 years or so, they've loved going to Hollywood films. Um, and, and the movies that do well here, and some that don't, tend to do well there as well. So, so Marvel has raked in billions of dollars of tick in ticket sales. Avatar and its sequel have been huge there. Um, and that's been the narrative for a long time. But, but coming out of COVID, we saw that there's really been a cleaving of, of tastes when it comes to the Chinese box office, where Chinese moviegoers more than ever are preferring to see Chinese films when they go to the theater. And not just, you know, turning away from Hollywood films, but outright rejecting them. And so we've had one example after another, whether it's the new Indiana Jones movie or Elemental or The Little Mermaid, I guess to pick on Disney here for a second, <laughs> all three of the, those movies have done just dismally. And, 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 you know, several years ago, a disappointing box office in China might be, you know, oh, it only made, you know, $40 million or so. A movie like Indiana Jones, 40 or $60 million. The new Indiana Jones has made $4 million in China. Um, and so that means not even the expats are going. <laughs> um, and, and I think what it speaks to is, is a couple of things we can get into, one of which is that over the past 20 years, Chinese filmmakers have really looked to Hollywood for the model and the template of what kind of movies to make. And as their output has gotten better and more sophisticated, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that Chinese audiences are preferring to see their own movie stars in their own stories rather than just continuing to blindly accept Western imports. Yeah, that's an interesting point here. So, uh, you know, I uh, uh, another uh, guy I've had on the show before, uh, Chris Fenton, he wrote a book called Feeding the Dragon. He is a he was a production exec for a while uh, in Hollywood and has some experience bringing stuff to China. And what, what he is has been saying to me for the last two years is. They, you know, they were they taught themselves to fish and now they're fishing. 
Um, they have they've imported the 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 talent and the know-how. They've taught their their folks how to do it. Now they're making their own stories, and that's what their people want. Absolutely. I mean, that was one thing that I was struck by when I worked on my book was just how far back that effort went. And 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 we're talking now. You know, Hollywood movies have really only in earnest been flowing into China since 1994. So this is a relatively new market by by Hollywood standards, right? And and really as early back as the early as the early 2000s, I found evidence of Chinese officials um, trying to trying to have a kind of technology transfer when it comes to the skills, the storytelling approaches um, and, and just the technical know how that goes into to making movies. And in some cases, they just outright hired Western talent to go over and teach them. And, and I think also there was just a kind of natural osmosis that happened where as exposure to Western entertainment deepened, many filmmakers in China tried to, you know, do what they could to, to recreate that kind of, that kind of story to- storytelling approach. Um, and, and, and we've seen this in a, in a really fascinating parallel in a lot of other industries, right? Whether it's, you know, manufacturing or um, in uh, airplane engines, like there's, there's been a kind of transfer of know-how and then a kind of a, a running with the ball in, in the Chinese-US dynamic in, in the past. It just so happens that it might take a little bit longer with something so like storytelling, right? Like how do, you, how do you transfer the elements of storytelling? It's a little more complicated and esoteric than transferring the blueprints for airplane engine modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're definitely here. And I think, I think the other thing that had to happen were, was that Chinese audiences had to be kind of trained to go back to the movies and see Chinese films. Because a lot of the Chinese folks that I would talk to would say things, you know, like that, that for a long time, if they, if they were born in the, in the 70s or 80s, the movie theater was really just another kind of venue for propaganda. And it was a place you often went because the state-owned enterprise where you worked was say, you said on Friday afternoon, we all have to go see this movie about the glories of the Chinese army or celebrate the anniversary of the PLA or something. And it was, it was really just sort of a place for your vegetables, not necessarily for just kind of sheer entertainment. And, and in the past 20 years or so, the Chinese uh, regime and, and also its creative class have tried to introduce more entertaining elements in, into the film. So, so when you go to a Chinese multiplex now, Frankly, it looks more diverse in lineup than an American multiplex. It's very, you know, they they actually have never stopped putting romantic comedies in theaters or thrillers or um, science fiction. I mean, it, it, whenever you look at the the lineup of the Chi- what's what's working at the Chinese box office right now, it really looks like a like the Hollywood of the nineteen eighties that is now romanticized by so many, right? Where it's every kind of movie is being put out, often original stories. And they're all, you know, leading to audiences turning up in real numbers. It, that's really that's a really interesting point. Uh, and I, I hadn't thought about it precisely this way, the, the way it, it kind of mirrors what was going on in the United States in the 1980s. Uh, and uh, I wonder uh, how much of this. So, uh, you know, the the economics of Hollywood have changed uh, drastically since then, right? To uh, focus on uh, home runs. You gotta, we got to make the billion dollar tentpole. That's what we got to make over and over again. Um, we're going to make five of those instead of, you know, 30 uh, of all sorts of movies that, that cost less. I mean, how much of this is just China, uh, the, the Chinese market being so inwardly focused that they can't really make that outside of, you know, uh, the, the very occasional um, 
uh, Wolf Warrior or whatever. They're they're not making billion dollar movies. They're making smaller, you know, more focused internally movies. Well, I would push back on that. I mean, they they aren't making many billion dollar movies, but the, the a hit in China is still making more money than just about any movie released in any other market. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're you're right. Like, I think there hasn't been a Chinese movie that's that's got done one point five billion dollars, and and you know, only five hundred million of that is coming from its home market. They they still have this this problem where their movies don't travel. And and something like 98 or 99 percent of a blockbuster gross in China tends to be coming from China. It's not like uh, audiences mm-hmm. in France or Nigeria are, are going to check it out. Um, but it is such a huge market that still a good business to be in. Um, and and what's interesting is it, to the point about sort of the genre diversification, you know, some of the, the really successful Chinese films of the past several years have been what what I've called popcorn propaganda, which are movies that are often, if not produced by the state, then endorsed by the state, um, often very nationalistic in tone, often very, you know, uh, you know, going back to that well of, of what kind of Chinese victories can we be looking at again and again and again. But rather than kind of having an eat your vegetables ideological approach, they are, you know, kind of like, a, there's like a bit of a Rambo stylization to them. Um, and, and it works on multiple levels because people actually want to go see it and the government likes the messaging that, that it's conveying. Um, and, and then in, in other cases, we have just going on strictly entertainment, um, insofar as every, every movie in China, you know, is approved by the censors before it's released. So, so every mm-hmm. movie in China is a reflection in some way of, of state priorities. Um, but there was a, a Chinese thriller um, that has made $400 million in China so far this year. I mean, um, horror movies do well in the US, but, but cracking $400 million as a horror film or a thriller is, is pretty hard to do. I think it just speaks yep. to the size of the market, but also that, that it doesn't seem like the kind of the consumer behavior of thinking that is not a theatrical type of release, that I'm only going to reserve my theatrical movie going to the biggest most spectacular releases isn't quite catching on in China to the degree that it has here in the U.S. How much of this is a function of consumer behavior? I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer to this. Always a mistake to ask a question you don't know the answer to. But uh, how much of this is a function of China having a less mature streaming market, right? So there's no Netflix in China. There's no Prime Video. I know they have their own uh, like Tencent has a streaming mm-hmm. service, but but the but you know the the market there is is I think I get the sense anyway is uh, uh, slightly less robust than uh, than certainly the theatrical market at this point. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how like their streaming hours compare to to the U.S. I mean, I've always you're right that they don't have Netflix. I mean, the the, the list of countries that Netflix is not operating in right now is is very telling. It's like there's maybe less than 10 fewer than 10 and it's like north korea syria and china like i mean it's 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 this glaring hole in their global domination and it's because the chinese regime has really been quite protectionist about its streaming services and there are three services that kind of function as their their primary services and and they're collectively referred to as the bats because it's baidu Alibaba and Tencent, who run the three main services there. And, and look, I think they certainly are streaming 
quite a lot there. Um, I, I think that one thing that, that is certainly happening is that theatrical movie going, I would say, especially compared to the US, is still a relatively new phenomenon in large parts of China. Um, and if you look at the, the screen per person uh, ratio, China is still underscreened relative mm -hmm. to the U.S. So that means there are still parts of the country where heading to the movies is, is not a particularly easy thing to do. Um, and so I think there might, be, there might be sort of a novelty element there. Um, I also think we're just, we, we just have to also keep in mind the simple math that they have, you know, more than 3x the population that, that the U.S. does. So a movie, when it takes off there, has a, has a higher ceiling. Um, than, than it does here in, in the US. Now, I think the other, the other thing to keep in mind is because of the relationship between uh, commercial enterprises and the state in China, you know, there's always been a, a real government support for movie going for several reasons. One is what we referenced, which is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great venue for messaging, um, uh, overt or covertly. Um, and then the other is that the model of the of the Chinese multiplex is very is also very like 1980s America. Like a lot of Chinese movie theaters and complexes are in malls and sort of these anchor tenants of broader real estate uh, developments. And so there's a real vested interest by the government to make sure that those ventures continue to see that foot traffic and continue to see that spending. And so the government will do what it can to support that business and sort of keep that entire kind of enterprise afloat in a way that, you know, certainly, you know, the US, the government stepped in to help uh, businesses during COVID to some degree. But like we're seeing now after, um, after theaters have reopened, in some cases, the Chinese government is offering theaters specifically a kind of subsidy and, and, and a form of support to make sure that that, that kind of movie going habit gets going again. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a real interesting disjunction. I mean, I'm looking at uh, your your uh, story. There's a there's a chart here that just tracks box office uh, American uh, box office from American movies by year. Um, and, you know, the high point is 2019 and then 2020 obviously dipped for for fairly obvious reasons. 2020, the covid year, of course. But then 2021, 2022, 2023, it doesn't quite come back the same way. Um, and again, you know, you see you see a similar kind of pattern in the United States, except in the United States, it's a pretty st steady progression back upwards. It, what was there a did 2020s uh, covid lockdown cessation, et cetera, essentially break the habit of going to see American movies? What is it? Was it a, a, a function of a, a lack of product or um, inability to go to the theaters? I'm just curious if you have a, a sense of what the what the cause and effect here. Yeah, I think in, in the same way that a lot of Americans fell out of the habit of going to see certain kinds of movies in theaters or movies at all in theaters. I think that that was one habit that was broken uh, during COVID, which was going to see American films specifically. And part of that was because you're right, during COVID, very few were coming out. But then after after 2020, in 2021 and 2022, the Chinese government, to the extreme frustration of Hollywood executives, did not let in nearly as many American films as it typically does. And, and in fact, it's actually, it seems like it was in violation of 
the treaty that kind of approved this distribution in, in to begin with, there there is an agreement that the Chinese government is supposed to let in 34, at least 34 foreign films a year. Now that normally means like 33 of them are American, right? 33 mm-hmm. or 33 are American. And and there was a time in 21 and in, in, in part in 22, where a fraction of that number was being let in. And, and this is where I think doing business with China for any sector can, can prove to be so frustrating, which is that there was nothing the studios could do. I mean, they could complain. Um, they could, you know, raise it as an issue, but, but there really wasn't much they could do in, in, pa- in part because they didn't want to make it worse, right? You don't want to alienate um, the Ministry of Propaganda and, and, and further jeopardize approvals of your films going forward and, and so on. So they just had to sort of sit back and cross their fingers and hope that China would, would start letting their movies in again. Um, it seems as though part of the reason for that kind of temporary partial blackout was that it, it, gave, um, it gave Chinese films a clean runway. Right. And there was there was a lot less competition. Uh, It's similar to the Netflix dynamic. Right. Like keep out the foreign product so that our our own domestic product and our domestic companies have, uh, you know, free reign. And and I think that contributed to the to the habit issue. I mean, for for instance, like as a case study, you can look at um, Marvel. Now, Marvel um, really was hit really hard by this blackout. In fact, I think it, it came to like something like six movies in the Marvel mm-hmm. Studios series, which is, as you know, like a very important kind of chronology were kept mm-hmm. out of China, starting with Black Widow back in the summer of 2020. And yep. so if you're, if you've, I mean, it's like anything, right? Like you miss, I mean, back whenever we watch shows week to week, if you missed a month, like, did you, did you really pick it back up or, or, and so there's going to be kind of a natural sort of falling off of, of, of some fans in that respect. Um, and then I think, I, I think that, um, you know, it's just also interesting to see how some of Hollywood's tried and true strategies today just run into all these problems in China. For instance, you know, I think Indiana Jones, which was a failure everywhere, let's be fair, um, you know, relies very heavily, as a lot of these new reboots do, on nostalgia. Well, Chinese audiences aren't very nostalgic for a character they barely know. So there's going mm-hmm. to be some kind of there's going to be a kind of lost in translation element there too. Well, and and but beyond that though, I mean, look at the Mission Impossible series, which you highlight uh, in your story, like the the new Mission Impossible, uh, Dead Reckoning Part One. Gotta get the whole thing in there. Um, uh, have we know, ever? That, have we, I'm sorry. Have we ever? I, mean, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but if we ever had a title with more, um, you know kind of like grammatical grammatical yeah yeah, yeah no. I'm, I'm thinking about those poor um those poor people who have to put up the marquees you know i'm like i mean where do they find all the colons and dashes they need these days yeah i, I feel like that was a a pretty regular thing in the uh, star wars episode blank right you know uh, uh series but this is i i do think three colons and m dashes is a is a is a new record for one for one movie um uh, the so this movie you know comes out in china it's doing what about a third yep. of the previous previous one and you know that's not a movie that's relying on nostalgia necessarily but it is a movie that's relying on star power right like the tom cruise gets out there and he goes everywhere he goes to every country and he's doing backflips on the red carpet and people are real excited to see him uh, uh but is that is that sort of star power uh, american western star power on the wane in China as well, in addition to, you know, people getting tired of 
you know, Marvel stuff or whatever. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, insofar as you can kind of make proclamations about a country with 1.4 billion people, I, I was talking to uh, a studio executive who was doing just that. <laughs> and he said that um, it's his belief that as the relations between the U.S. and China really frayed during those COVID years, that a lot of Chinese moviegoers really did ingest this kind of skepticism toward anything made in the USA. Um, and, and that especially, you know, in, in smaller cities or more rural areas, there's going to be a real reluctance to embrace American movies um, as they once did because of those politics or just sort of a general kind of distaste for, for the country. So I think that's part of it. I mean, like, it's never any one thing, right? But I think it's that it's that kind of years-long lag of having a steady flow of American product. I think I think you have to bring the politics into it. I think you have to bring the kinds of movies that America's making into it. And and also then, and I'd say primarily the the sort of the new and improved competition that Chinese movies are offering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's, uh, let's think about what this actually means for, uh, Hollywood, right? So if you can't make 200, 300, $400 million on a movie, uh, even with the, the higher than usual cut that China keeps, um, from that, from that picture, what does that do to budgets in America? Like what does, what, what are the studio execs, uh, looking at when they're setting their, you know, profit and loss sheets are like, okay, we got to make X amount of money here we got to make x amount of money here i mean if you zero out china everywhere which my understanding is that several studios have just started doing that uh what does that do to what you can green light uh in terms of making a movie yeah that's my understanding as well which is that in these in these green light meetings where they project um how much they might expect to make in the u.s and canada how much they might expect to make in a foreign market and then how much they might expect to make in china um that they've just put a zero in the china column and and i think part of that is just like that's just good office politics, right? Like if you if you if you tell your uh, accountants that you're not expecting anything, and then you you get an extra you know twenty five million out of it, like it's it's kind of found money. Um, but it does it does lower the ceiling of what you can spend on the movie ultimately. Um, and, and I should say that the reason they're putting a zero in the China column is not just because Chinese moviegoers aren't showing up; it's because they just they just can't predict if they're going to get in anymore, or if some if mm-hmm. some you know is there going to be some is some trade wind going to blow and there's going to be some dispute and, and suddenly they're, they're caught in the crosshairs, right? Like, so, so that's, that's kind of, I think it's the political instability and the, the audience reaction that's leading to that kind of zeroing out that you, that you mentioned. Um, so yeah, I think, I think budgets overall are coming down because we just have seen that audiences everywhere with just a few exceptions aren't turning out as they, as they once did. Um, I think that, I don't think that it means that we're in a world where they're suddenly a long leash of free expression. I, I, I mean, I think one, the other element of this is the, the censorship that's, that's required or the self-censorship that's required to make sure that any movie that you want to get into China does get into China. So not making a movie that, you know, casts certain actors or broaches any, any themes. I don't think that not planning on a Chinese box office gross means that studios aren't still thinking about that. And I'll explain why, mm-hmm. which is that every studio, all the, the five major studios are all part of much larger corporate parents. And in the past, China has punished companies anywhere it can for political messaging it doesn't agree with. 
So if Disney says, you know, well, let's say Fox, Fox would be more appropriate. So let's say Fox says, you know, we don't need to worry about China's box office anymore. Let's make a movie about Tiananmen Square. Let's make a big Oscar movie about Tiananmen Square. Um, well, that actually would ripple through the larger Walt Disney Company. And, and pretty soon, Bob Iger would have to be, you know, answering for that messaging. There, the theme park that it runs there would be under, under threat. The toys it sells, all the other movies it wants to release in theaters. So I don't necessarily think that there is sometimes this narrative where, well, if we're kind of decoupling from the Chinese box office, maybe that will convince studios not to worry as much about falling in line with the censors. I don't buy that. I think it's still going to be still going to be a, con- a major consideration. Um, please. Yeah, let's I, let me jump in here uh, just very quickly. And uh, could you could you what is the situation like with the theme parks in uh, in in China? Because I know this is a you know, Disney has Disney has a park. NBC Universal is building um, uh, uh, a, a theme park. Uh, what is or maybe has already opened? I, I'm I think not sure. it has opened. Remember. Yeah, I think it's open. Yeah. yeah. So so they so you've got these you've got these corporations that aren't just looking at box office dollars. They're also looking at like what happens to this massive amount of money we have invested in building up actual structural locations that cannot be moved, um, you know, if things go south with China. Right. And, and so. I think, you know, one thing, the, the main thing to understand with the, like the theme park, so Shanghai Disneyland um, is, the, is the biggest example of this. It was a $5.5 billion investment. But like so many Western, like all Western ventures in China, Disney is not allowed to be a majority owner of it. There are Chinese companies that own, I think, around 55% of it. And Disney has a 45% minority share. Um, obviously, though, huge reputational cost if anything happens there. I mean, the best example I, I can remember of just that shows just how beholden these companies have to be to, to the Chinese government it was, I think, in 2021. It was during China's zero COVID uh, policy restrictions. And, and there, was a, there was a day where there was a positive COVID test registered at Shanghai Disneyland. And the response from the government was to lock everyone inside the park and not let them leave until they tested negative. Now, that is not the Disney way. <laughs> that is not the Disney yeah. experience, right? And I'll, I'll never forget doing a story on it and, and being told by someone at Disney that to kind of let the time go by while everyone was standing in these long lines to get tested for COVID, they decided to put off the fireworks and, and, and allow them to see sort of watch a fireworks show while they stood in line. I thought, what a surreal experience that that must have been. But it shows you that like it's the it's called Shanghai Disneyland. Everyone thinks it's a Disney theme park, but it's in China. So it's going to be run by China. Um, so so but but it's but it's a huge as you said, it's a huge kind of um, bargaining chip. Right. I mean, there are so many things that um, Chinese authorities can do to uh, try to kind of, pre- you know, apply pressure on on something if they if they as i said they don't like the messaging yeah yeah it's uh it's fast i mean i'm just trying to imagine what would happen if if china said well, all right disney you're out we're we're tired of these uh these these movies you're making you know you made seven years in tibet 30 years ago we're, we're done with you 
uh, and what the parks would actually look like. I mean, like, you know, uh, would they would they have to rebrand it? Would they just tear it down? I, I don't know. I, it's 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 an interesting thing. I don't know. It's always a, it's. I mean, there's always a dance in China between like what whether they're going to prioritize the economics, the economic equation, or the political equation. The political equation usually wins, but I I, I mean, not good. It wouldn't be good for Chinese business if if Shanghai Disneyland ceases to exist or ceases to exist as a Disney park either, right? So so there's always yeah. there's a bit of a um they've they've kind of got like mutually assured destruction or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. What else is going on in the world of China and the box office? Well, I think one okay. thing that was was particularly interesting, and I, I worked with several colleagues who are based in Asia on this story because I thought the what I really wanted this piece to include were like voices from Chinese moviegoers because I mean, like I was seeing these returns, these like these openings that are just, I mean, like grosses you might expect out of like the philippines or mm-hmm. korea i mean like much much smaller markets coming out of coming out of china um which was at one point in history the number one box office in the world um and and i think one thing that was particularly interesting was the response to the little mermaid which um the, the live action remake of the little mermaid and and we talked to folks and and it was interesting that the you know the casting on that that movie um, and this kind of sort of colorblind casting and, and having um, a black actress play Ariel, the Little Mermaid, and so on. Um, it had obviously inspired a lot of reaction everywhere, positive, mostly, I think, but also it had become a bit of a cause celeb in, in conservative circles, too. And, um, and I think what was interesting was talking to, when my colleagues talked to moviegoers in the U- or in, in China, they they received that casting as what they what they routinely refer to as political correctness, and they didn't they didn't want um, to see it in part because of that. And it was interesting because it was you know that is that is casting that's kind of like responding to a conversation happening here in the U.S., but mm-hmm. a conversation that understandably I think a lot of Chinese moviegoers might might not be privy to. And so to then see it received as this kind of um, like political messaging. I mean, like one of my colleagues was talking to a moviegoer who said, you know, I don't go to the movies to be like sort of like, uh, you know, taught ide- ideology. I go to be entertained, which is a, li- a bit, I would say a bit, <laughs> yeah. a bit ironic, um, it, you know, yeah. given uh, the CCP's history of, of the movie theater and how it's treated the movie theater. But, um, but no, I think it's, it, it is an example of how, we've we've seen like now as the as the movies reflect american culture and conversation more and more like there being another kind of gap in in what appeals to to moviegoers in china specifically yeah i mean i'm just imagining somebody uh being like i'm not going to see this new little mermaid movie because it's too politically correct i don't want to be indoctrinated instead i'm going to go see the battle at lake changjin uh you know that that's that's what i'm looking uh, no, but it is interesting, though. I mean, I'm I'm you know, I am always hesitant to um, uh, I'm always hesitant to make box office predictions or projections based on, you know, outrage, controversy, et cetera. I think a lot of stuff that we talk about is unfortunately very, very online, very, sure. you know, kind of like uh, the 50 loudest people on Twitter sound like a, a million people. And that's not necessarily the case. 
But it is it was interesting to read that part of the story because I it made me it made me wonder, you know, how much of that is how much of that is native to China, an internal Chinese discussion versus uh, a, a conversation they're picking up on here in the United States, if at all? I mean, it feels like China is probably having no real crossover with like politics Twitter in the United States. You know, I does that does that, is, does that question make sense? Like, where where is it coming from? Is I guess the the, the big question. It's a great question, and I mean, I I. I... To be honest, I don't know. And I think, but one thing I was struck by was, um, you know, when I would, when I would talk to my colleagues, they said the the phrase that a lot of people they were seeing, yes, online, but also talking to in person, um, it was political correctness, political correctness, political correctness, which, which is interesting. I, I actually thought, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if the, the charged topic of political correctness is just kind of a broader debate in China right now. And they're sort of slotting it into an internal conversation they're having too, because it just was, yeah. it, I just was struck by the sort of how, um, how commonly used a phrase it was. I mean, because that's, I mean, it could also just be a translation question, I guess. True. Right. Like, I mean, what does, what does political correctness actually translate to in, in China? Um, in Chinese. I, I don't know. I mean, I, again, it's it's a it's it's a really interesting topic because, again, that phrase political correctness jumped out at me. I was like, oh, that that sounds. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Where, you know, what is what is what is going on there? Uh, interesting. Very interesting. All right. I, as you know, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything folks should know about uh, this story or anything else you might be working it's a on. good question what, i wanted to, i mean i wanted to make sure we hit little mermaid because i do think that's interesting and i do think that there's been a lot of um kind of speculation about why it's not performing well and and very little like actual reporting um so that was that was one thing i wanted to hit but um I'm trying to think here I'm trying to think if there's there's i mean you know what's really interesting sunny is like i was looking at like basically the summer calendar's over like there's not like there's nothing after really Barbie and Oppenheimer that I can think of off the top of my head. So I will say like, I don't, I don't see any films on the horizon that are going to buck this trend. What, what about the Meg, the Meg two? Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole part of my story too. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's, there, there is the Meg, which the Meg two, the trench, um, the trench, which is, which is kind of, um, you know, the exception that proves the rule um, because it is uh, it is the, now a very rare thing and al almost an artifact in Hollywood. It's a co-production between the U.S. and China. And it cast uh, the movie cast Wu Jing, who is one of China's biggest action stars in, in a role opposite Jason Statham. And so there is a world where the Meg 2, if I had to predict today, probably does better in China than it does in the U.S. And, and I think it was it was probably greenlit on that assumption as well. Um, but as I said, that is that is really um, a bit of an artifact because those kinds of movies um, are very rarely made anymore. Those kinds of China play movies um, and, and the Meg 2 is um, I'm, I'm told at least, you know, if all if all goes according to plan, uh, a franchise in the making that they're hoping will sort of still be that kind of hollywood chinese crossover but um yeah but i think a lot of the pure the pure global plays that hollywood has on the docket the the marvel movies um the pixar releases the movies that traditionally went over to china and made a killing like 
I'd have to imagine that there are a lot of, there's a lot of sort of furious revising of projections inside these studio offices after the summer that they've had. And, and the other thing, the other thing I would add before we go is I think, you know, this was raised as a prospect in one conversation and it's, it's extreme, but it shows you the degree to which the narrative has turned in Hollywood, which is, I was talking to one executive who said, when you're grosses out of China are so bargain basement low. I mean, sub 10 million. That means that these studios are actually losing money by releasing movies in China. Um, after marketing expenses and the fact, as you, as you alluded to earlier, like they only get 25% of the gross out of the market, they're losing money. Um, and so he raised the question of whether or not at some point studios decide it's not even worth submitting certain titles because it's um it's rather than at one point being found money or or something close to pure profit it's actually a money losing venture Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i this is the thing i keep wondering is how much longer uh the the studios can can you know focus on china or even treat it as a ancillary market um if it's going to be such a such a disaster area for them right Um, right but anyway, uh, Eric, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, again, uh, the title of your book uh, is The Red Carpet, or Red Carpet, just Red Carpet, uh, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Uh, definitely, I, I strongly recommend picking it up if you're interested in this topic. It's, there's a ton of uh, information there. It is, uh, it's well worth your time. And there's lots of really interesting little tidbits about how the, the, the various entertainment companies kind of have uh, you know in, invested in China and 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 seen seen that pay off or not? Um, but Eric, thank you for being on the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Sonny. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I am the culture editor at the Bulwark, and we will be back next week with another episode. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.